And Father, we are so thankful that you are ever-present. You never leave us. You never forsake us. Uh, we are never without you uh, closer than um, a, a brother or a friend, closer than our next breath. You are, are there. In fact, you, for, for, particularly for all those who have put their faith in Jesus, uh, your spirit even lives within us. And so your strength and your power and your peace and love and, and encouragement are always with us. And yet sometimes it's hard to, to, to see and sometimes you ask us to trust you even when we don't feel it. And, uh, and so, Father, I pray for those who, who today are having a hard time recognizing your presence. Uh, maybe don't feel it, maybe don't have the ability to see what it is you're accomplishing, that uh, your peace would uh, fill their hearts and lives. You would give them eyes to see that you are still at work and you are still loving them. You are actually holding them up in ways they can't uh, <clears throat> understand and that you would give them joy, uh, a joy that's that's based not on their circumstances, but it's based in your great love for them. A uh, joy that's not based on feeling happy, but it's, it's a contentment and, a, and, a, and a being lifted up uh, by your presence and by your love. And uh, those who are, are battling sickness and, and health issues, Lord, we do pray for your healing. Um, and you're walking with them through that and even... Uh, separation because of, of those things. And, and for those who are grieving the loss of a dear one, ask for your, your presence and care and, and hope in Jesus to, to be made more, more obvious. And for those who are struggling with caring for someone who may not understand their need for care, uh, that uh, you would help them to have the, the strength to keep on doing what they need to do, even though it's not accepted like they would want it to be, or uh, the, the road is hard and the, and the processes are difficult. And we pray for your, your presence. And um, just in that line, I think especially of Nolan today and, and his family, I think of, of Kathy and, and Dave and, and their family with, with her, her dad, that uh, you'd, you'd just walk with them in a special way. Give them your peace and open the doors ahead that need to be opened. And so, so many more things, Lord, that we can't name everything, but you do. You know everyone, even the ones that we've not been told about. And so we pray for your, your work in each heart, each life, for growth and, and strength that comes from you. Father, as we look into your word today, we would also be encouraged by uh, your amazing love and grace in salvation and in uh, providing a Savior and one who doesn't come with demands, but opens his hand and says, I know you've failed. Come and be with me in my forgiveness and in, and in the, the, the good things I have for you in the future. Help us to understand that in, in ways that apply to our life right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, in our Christian, Christian life and our Christian walk, 
one of the really important things to do is to live out of who we truly are in Christ, to live out of that identity that has become ours because we are united with Christ. Um, really, it's about being connected to reality. So often we think of reality as, how do, what do I see? What do I know? Well, if you've lived very long, hopefully you've figured out that what you see isn't always reality. And what you know isn't the full picture. There's so much more to it. And our perspective is, is limited. And sometimes we try to decide what reality is without nearly enough information. Well, we always are lacking information, aren't we? Paul's been working hard in the book of Galatians as we've been working our way through to help us with the big picture from God's perspective. He wants us to know that we are able to be made right with God only by trusting him to provide that way, the way through Jesus and trusting in his work. That there is no way to earn a right relationship with God. No matter how hard you try, no matter how well you do, you cannot earn a right relationship with God. That's been consistently what he's been getting at all through this letter to the people of the region of Galatia. And he's warning them to try, now that they've come and found Jesus, to try to turn God's law into a means of making a right relationship with God will never work because it was never intended to do that. God never intended anyone to be made right with God by his law. If you remember last week, we looked at how, how the law was considered a tutor or, or a guide, a, um, an authority over the people of Israel to prepare them for the coming of Messiah. It kept them from going too far as a culture into evil. It, it marked them out as a special people among all the nations of the, of the world that the Messiah would come through. So God was using that to prepare them, to get them ready to realize that they were sinners. They couldn't keep the law, but in fact, anyone who broke a part of the law was then under a curse, we found out in chapter 3. Everyone under a curse who was under the law and did not keep it perfectly. And so the law was a guide, pointing us in the direction for one thing, that we needed a Savior, that we needed someone to bear our sin for us, but also, in particular, guiding the nation of Israel because they were the ones who were under the Old Testament law. God gave it to that people so that they would be prepared and ready to be that line through which the promised one came. And so now as we get to chapter 4, uh, Paul's going to work a little bit more on that idea of the tutor, of, of the law being like dealing with a child, getting them ready for being an adult. And, but he broadens it out a little bit more. So follow along with me, if you would, in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all, 
from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which were by nature no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. So that ends on a kind of somber note, doesn't it? Because as, as the, these new believers in Galatia, many of them Gentiles, have been told by people who came through after Paul that they have, to, they have to submit to the law. They have to keep the Old Testament law first. And then they can come to Jesus saying, oh, no, 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 no. Don't think that for a moment. Let's continue on with this idea of the law being a tutor. And think of it as that, that young person born into a place of privilege. And in the household, they have these different people who are there assigned to look out for things for their well-being. And as he says there in the first, first three verses, if, when the heir is a child, it may as well be a slave by the way life happens. In a sense, a, a child, he, he's the heir. He's going to one day own the whole estate, right? But as a little child, guess what? Everybody tells him what to do. I know you kids feel that sometimes, right? Everybody gets to tell me what to do. Well, that was the case here. Here's a child who has all, the, all of the, the legal uh, potential of owning it all and being in charge of everything that his father owns. But as a little child, he is in no position to give anybody orders to take care of anything, right? He's just learning how to talk, how to walk, how to, how to do the basic things of life. And then there's all these different people, because of his immaturity, who tell him what to do. Uh, the tutor, we've already talked about in chapter 3, but then I hear it also talks about guardians and managers, so there's people in charge of his personal life, there's people in charge of the property that he will one day inherit, and you know what? they all get to tell him what to do. It's like he's a slave of the slaves. Even, even these lowly slaves get to tell 
the heir what to do, even though one day he will be the master, the owner, the Lord over all of it and them. Now that happens not just to produce some sort of irony. Paul doesn't just say, well, isn't it ironic? But to show that the heir needs to be ready for what, what's there. Needs to be ready for the position that he's going into. In the same way, the nation of Israel needed to be at the right place for the Messiah to come. And you might notice that as Paul goes into these first uh, three verses, he starts to, to use we again, right? Verse 3, so also we, while we were children. And, and, and he did this in chapter 3 as well. When he talked as a Jewish person, he, he talked from the perspective of the nation Israel. So he says, when we were children. In other words, when the nation of Israel was not ready yet for the Messiah to come. And even those who believed in God and it was reckoned to them or given to them as righteousness like Abraham did. There were those who, all, all throughout the history of Israel, who believed God and it was reckoned to them as righteousness. They were given that gift of righteousness, but even they were called to be under the law as a part of the nation. They were called to obey the law, to live under the law, right? But because it was preparing them for this future relationship with their Savior who would be born as one of them. And so it trained them in obedience. It trained them in righteousness. It trained them to be set apart in an evil world for God's purposes. It served a very specific purpose for the nation of Israel so that they would be ready to be the, the ones who, who brought the Messiah into the world. Now, did they keep the law perfectly? Nope, never. Right? Did they fail at it miserably, a lot of them? Yes. Some of them totally rebelled against it, right? Some of them took it and tried to manipulate it so that it could get them what they wanted. But overall, God was taking this law and using it to prepare everything so that when the time was right, and that's the issue, well, how long? How long under the, under the managers? How long under the, these, these rules? Well, Paul says here, it happened with a child who was an heir until the date set by the father. Well, the father knew when, when, the, when the young man was at a point where he could now act as an adult, right? Same thing with God the Father. When he saw that everything was lined up just right, that's the time when Messiah would come and the law would have accomplished its purpose in having the stage set perfectly. And so really this is something that, that uh, has been, been working its way out. It's not a matter that Israel got everything right because of the law. No, it was just God was working out all kinds of details to have everything just so, so that when Messiah came, it would be just what we needed. It would be in the right time so then the message could go to the right places. Because uh, verse 3 talks about how they were in bondage under the elemental things of the world. 
God was using the basics of life, you could say, to make the way for his son to come. Uh, the descendants of Abraham and David, through whom the promises were that the Messiah would come, right? The descendants of Abraham and David had laws about every little part of their lives. As I mentioned before, the law given through Moses showed them that God was sovereign and in charge of the tiniest details of their lives. They had laws about how they eat, how they drank, how they married, how they raised their children, how they built a house, uh, how they cooked their food. You can go through all kinds of different details of their life, and God said, here's, here's a law for that. Here's a rule for that. Here's a way. I am sovereign over every one of these little things in your life. And that law helped them to understand that God really was the one who had it all under his sovereign control. Now, they rebelled against that over and over again, right? Just like we often do. But they had the opportunity to see that they were sinners who wanted their own way instead of God's way, and the law was for their good. It gave them a better life than the people around them who didn't acknowledge God, who totally rejected their Creator. But it did exist for a limited time, operationally, and for a limited purpose of getting Israel ready for the coming of Messiah. Because verse 4 tells us, we, the Jewish people, under the elemental things of the world, verse 3, but verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time came. That's a term of maturity. And that doesn't mean that Israel suddenly became mature enough, but God's plan had matured. It got to the right point in time. All of the parts that God was gathering together came into place. And a big part of that was what he did with the law. But he had been working on many, many things in preparation. The nation of Israel had gone through literally centuries of discipline. God had corrected them. God had even sent them away into exile to Babylon and to Assyria. And that actually, the great thing that came out of that was God had basically cured the nation of their desire for overt idolatry. After the exile, you didn't see them setting up idols on the street corners or trying to put idols in the temple. <clears throat> that overt idolatry seems to have been cured. Now, they still had idols of the heart, right? Things they wanted that they put above God. But it seems to have cleared away that overt idolatry. But they also, while they were in Babylon, they established a thing called the synagogue, a place of coming together to learn and to worship together the one true God of Israel. And then, when they were scattered all over the place, and they went different places, they established synagogues, places of learning where the, the revelation from God we call the Old Testament was taught and was learned and was, they worked to understand it and hopefully live by it as well, right? So now scattered places all over were these little places where there was a group of Jewish people gathering to worship the true God. And also, they would gather sometimes 
some of the Gentiles around them that, that looked at what they were doing and they said, you know, what you're doing is different than what we do. There are some great things going on among you. We want to attach ourselves to your synagogue and learn about the God that you worship. So that's another thing that God was doing in the world. But not only that, God, just as he had predicted in the book of Daniel, brought in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire conquered a large section of the known world. And they brought what's called the Roman peace. Now, the Roman peace was enforced by the Roman army, right? Wasn't, uh, you know, maybe the best thing to be dominated by the Roman army. However, on the other hand, you could travel much more easily all over that whole region because it was all enforced by Rome that you would be at peace, right? Otherwise, you'd feel the wrath of Rome. And so now people could travel lots of places they couldn't travel before, and besides that, they could travel more easily because the Romans built amazing roads, system of, of travel all over their empire, and shipping then became way more common and more regular, and you had regular shipping routes. And that was going to make the spread of the gospel so much easier once the Messiah did come. And even within Israel, there were some people like Anna, like Simeon, like some of Jesus' disciples, well, really all of Jesus' disciples, who were looking for the coming of Messiah. They were looking at what was going on around them, and they were saying, the promised one. Seems like things are lining up. Seems like he ought to be coming soon. And when he did show up, they were looking. They were listening. They were saying, you are the promised one, when he explained who he was. And so God used the law in Israel, but then he was also working out probably billions of other details that we don't even, we'll never be fully aware of, to get things ready so that according to verse 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so the very Son of God was now going to be sent to be that Messiah. And he's not just anyone. But if you turn over to the book of Hebrews, and we've got a couple of references in Hebrews, so you want to keep your thumb in, in Galatians. <clears throat> but then also you're going to be wanting to look at, at Hebrews on the next point as well. <clears throat> but Hebrews chapter 3 compares Moses, who God gave the, the law through, and Jesus, the Son of God. And he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a, of a heavenly calling, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was in all his house. Oh, so here's somebody who was faithful like Moses. But notice verse 3. He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in his house as a servant 
for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. You see, God's raised up Moses from the people of Israel to give them the law, to be a faithful servant. But when he sent forth his son, when the time was right, this was the owner of the house. This was Jesus, God the creator, coming. It wasn't just anyone. And he has now come to put the house in order, you could say, to provide the salvation that's been looked for through all those centuries. Greater than Moses, who had given the law. In fact, the law was just getting things ready for what Jesus would do. Jesus had always existed. And now, sent out by the Father, he was going on a mission to redeem these people who had been under the law, who had been put under the curse of the law because they hadn't kept it. Something great was happening here. But not only was he God's son, but he was born of a woman, verse 4 tells us. And if you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it tells us why he was born of a woman. <clears throat> there it says, For since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, this is speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. See, to redeem human beings out of their curse, out of their condemnation, out of their slavery to being afraid of death, Jesus had to become one of us. That's why it says he was born of a woman. He came as a man like you and I. But notice that it says he was born of a woman. It doesn't say he was born of a man, does it? And he was going to come as one who was born of Mary, right? Joseph was not his physical father, but he was, in fact, the son of God. And he would come and accomplish something that no other man could do. And he would come just as Genesis 3.15 said. And it said that he would come and he would crush the serpent's head. Or he would bruise the serpent's head. He would defeat Satan and the sin that came because of his temptation. Promised right after mankind sinned, he would come just as it was promised. And he would also deal with the fear that was ours ever since Adam and Eve sinned. And they said in the garden, well, I heard you walking in the garden and I was afraid, right? Because they knew death is what came because of sin. But now, all these centuries later, as God's plan has unfolded and narrowed down to this one person, he was able because he was one of us, and yet he was God the, God the Son, to defeat Satan, to defeat our enemy, to buy us out of our slavery to the fear of death. 
Not only that, being born in Israel, he was born subject to the law. They had been given the law, and none of them had ever kept it perfectly. They'd all failed miserably. They were all, as we found out in chapter 3, under a curse. Chapter 3, verse 10, you remember? Everyone who doesn't keep it completely and fully is under a curse, it tells us. But Jesus was born under the law, subject to the law as a Jewish person, and he kept it perfectly. He did absolutely everything he was supposed to do. He never did any of the things that were prohibited for the Jewish people under the law. Never a single failure. And for the the sake of those under the law, he was the perfect law keeper so that he was able to, to take that curse on himself. He didn't deserve it, but he was able to lift it off of those who did deserve it, pay the price for it. And there's a special sense in which Jesus did that, came as a Jewish person to save Jewish people, as it says here, to save those who were born under the law, to redeem them, verse 5. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, we Gentiles, we're under, the, we're under a curse because we violated our conscience. We violated the revelation we have in nature. We violated God's character by, by rebelling. But Jesus came in a sense, with a special mission for the people of Israel who were used as his his instrument to bring the Messiah, to even redeem them from the law that brought a curse on them. Isn't that an amazing thing? And so now the way of, of having righteousness credited to your account became very specific. It was you believe not just believe God, but you believe in the one that God sent, the Son of God, Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah. Because he'd done everything necessary to buy a sinner out from under the curse of the law. But not only just out of the curse, but according to verse 5 it says, That we, again here Paul speaking as a Jew, that we might receive the adoption as sons. I think that sounded really strange to a lot of Jewish people. What do you mean we're Jewish? We're, We're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're sons of God, aren't we? Well, Paul says they had to be, they had to be given the gift of adoption as sons because they were sinners under the curse of the law. Jesus made it possible for them to enter into that privileged position as adopted sons. That that idea of being adopted as sons, of course, means taking one on to be your son, who was not, and bestowing on them all the rights and privileges of a son, the same as your natural-born sons would be. This is telling us it doesn't matter who you were born to, you had to be adopted as a son. It was necessary even for Jews in order to enjoy the the relationship that God wants for all of us to be adopted as sons. Because they were under the curse, having not kept the law. 
Well, now he's going to turn. He's been talking, we, this is what was true of us as Jewish people. And in verse 6, <clears throat> then he says, because you are sons. Now he, he talks to, the, to the, Gen, the Galatian churches, including all of these Gentiles. Because remember, early on, he talked about how <clears throat> they were all sons by faith in Christ Jesus. So the door was opened up for everyone, right? Everyone who put their faith in Jesus. And that's the way it had always been. That's how Abraham came to, came to have redemption, came to be righteous before God. And so he says, now all of you, Jew, Gentile alike, you are all sons by faith in Christ Jesus. And verse 6 says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now we get to, well, what are these great privileges of being adopted as a son? And the very first thing He brings is that God sends, He says, the Spirit of His Son within us, crying that out, crying out, Abba, Father. And, and he's called this, it's interesting, he's not called the Spirit of the Son anywhere else. But here he is. As a member of the Trinity, yeah, he's the Spirit of the Father, right? He is the Spirit of God. He's also the Spirit of the Son. And he brings a heart in us when he comes in that recognizes that there's a new intimate relationship with God, with our ultimate Father. And it says, he comes and he cries out within us, Abba. That's, that's, that's a, a close, intimate name like Daddy, or Papa. Eh? We can call God that kind of an intimate name. In fact, Paul talks about this in the book of Romans as well. Romans 8, 14 through 16. <clears throat> there it says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are what? Sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So this goes far beyond simply adoption. God changes us on the inside so that we have an understanding of that relationship in a whole new dynamic way. And we say for ourselves, the Spirit comes into us and says, Abba, Father, right? But then we turn around and now it comes out of our mouth. Daddy, Father. And you know what? Who, who else is recorded in Scripture as saying that? Jesus did. I'm not going to turn there now, but for, in Mark 14, 36, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's agonizing over going to the cross, how does he cry out to his Father? Abba. Father. We get to do the same thing Jesus does as the Son. When we put our trust in him, now we get that same privilege. But not only are we sons, 
But he says, but if we're sons, then we are heirs, back in Galatians chapter 3. All who have put their faith in Jesus participate in that intimate, special relationship where not only do we get to call God Father, but we get to experience all the privileges of the family without reservation. Gentile and Jew are both adopted into the family equally. We all have a future relationship that never ends with our Father, and we can confidently expect to gain all the blessings of a new body when either Jesus comes to get us or when we die, of heaven, of forever fellowship with our Creator into eternity. We are heirs of that. So Paul says, this is, this is the reality picture for you. This is what it looks like. So why do you want to go back to living like a slave? Why do you want to go back to the terrible situation you had before? Speaking especially to Gentiles in verse 8, he says, However, at that time when you did not know God, he said, Gentiles, you didn't know the true God who created everything, the God who was guiding Israel along to be that, that path for the Messiah to come. Well, what was your condition? You were slaves to those things which by nature are no gods. Every person has some form of religion that's based on rules and every religion that is not the worship of the one true God is, is based on the manipulation of these basic functions of life. And you look and you see people out in the jungle making uh, sacrifices of chickens, uh, doing certain good things to appease the spirits. But you also go to major religions where they have a list. Here's the things you have to do if you hope to see paradise. Here's the karma you have to have if you're going to be reincarnated in a better form. Every religion has this, this list of rules and things you have to do in hope that you can manipulate the power that you put yourself under. Says, That's the way you lived. You worship things that were not even a god. We've imagined so many false gods Or a person actually might not even have a specific God, but they worship, well, basically themselves and their own desires, right? And the power that those desires we think have, and so we live to, to enjoy the pleasure that our desires demand. And so we work with that list of demands, don't we? And we try to appease our desires by what, what it is we do. And the Jews, they were enslaved under the law in a system that was designed to prepare them for Messiah. They had some advantages. Their system at least reflected God, and it wasn't made to give them righteousness. It was to prepare them for Messiah. As Gentiles, we've just made up all kinds of crazy systems, and we, and we worship whatever power we think, trying to manipulate it, trying to appease it, trying to get what we want, even if that authority is ourselves. So that's where you were. 
Then you found Jesus. Then you have forgiveness of your sins by faith in him. So verse 9 says, But now that you have come to know God, you didn't know about him, now you've come to experientially know him. That's the distinction in, in the Greek words there. Or rather to be known by God. You have a, a, a relationship both ways with God, right? You have come to experientially know him. He experientially knows you. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Why do you want to go back to false religion, he says? Remember, what they're being told they need to do is put themselves under the law of Moses. And Paul is equating that with going back to their pagan religion. The Gentile believers in Galatia, they've encountered this righteous system of law that God gave to the Jews. And now there's a temptation to go back to the familiar, to go back to a system of slavery like they used to be under. They found a law that's based on God's character, right? Uh, it was based on, the, on purposes that were superior to any man-made religion. And so when these Jews tell them, well, you have to be under the law of God first, then you can believe in Jesus. It's tempting to say, well, yeah, that would be so much better than where we used to be. But to turn the Old Testament law into a means of being right with God, when it was made to be a tool to prepare the nation for the Messiah, is really to create a pagan religion out of a tool that had already fulfilled its purpose. What if you catch that? But to take the things of God and create a pagan religion, that's what he's saying you're doing if you're going to put yourself under the law. You're taking a tool that God used for a very good and righteous purpose and you're twisting it and turning it into something that condemns people to hell. Because they now depend on themselves to do the things in the law and they will never be able to do that. Jesus has already spoken seriously about this with the scribes and the Pharisees. If you look at Matthew chapter 23, Verse 15, he uses these very strong words with them. Matthew 23, verse 15. <clears throat> he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte or one follower. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Because the Pharisees' system of religion was really a pagan religion which grabbed the law of God and turned it into a way they thought of becoming righteous before God. It was never meant to be that. That wasn't its purpose. It says, and it says, if you get people to follow you and trying to use the law to make you righteous... He says, you make them twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Wow. You see, because churches have a lot of people in them who are following a pagan religion. There are whole churches that are based on pagan religion, where there's a system of things 
of do's and don'ts that say, well, you, you do these and, and you're okay with God. Paul says, why go back to that? It simply makes you a son of hell because it simply shows that you cannot be righteous, even if you make up the system of rules. And so Paul, as he closes out this section, says, I fear. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Paul's concerned that they might go for what they're being told by these false teachers who are Jewish. And if they do, it's just proof that they never actually put their faith in Jesus in the first place. They never just received a gift that reckoned righteousness to them. But they just switched from one pagan religion to a Jewish-based pagan religion, to an Old Testament pagan religion that, that stole the law for purposes it was never intended to be for. He fears that they've just taken off one filthy coat and put on another filthy coat that's infested with fleas and lice too. Because being religious is the most certain way to end up in hell. Being religious and saying, here is my list of things to do and not do, and that's going to make me right with God, it's a certain way to end up in hell, and, and people do it thinking that I'm just fine. I'm okay. Paul says, I fear for you. I'm concerned for you, dear brothers. I, I believe you're brothers. But if you take that step, it's going to prove you're still under the curse of the law because you can't even keep a law that you make up. It's amazing how prone we as sinners are to turn back again to what we are used to doing. People who are homeless, for instance, can be provided with everything they need. Given all, all that would, would, you would think would fix them and turn around and go back to the streets. People who are, in, are enslaved to drug and alcohol can be helped out, but then people turn around and go right back under what they're used to being in. All kinds of slavery, sexual slavery and, and other kinds of slavery, people can be put under. They can be freed and released from that. And they will still go back and put themselves back under that slavery. We'll, we have this tendency as sinners to go back to the familiar. It's true as well with going back to a religion of doing according to a list of do's and don'ts, thinking it makes us right with God. We'll trade lists thinking, oh, I've stepped up. We could even take the law of God given to the people of Israel based on his character, based to demonstrate righteousness, and turn it into a false religion. It's a dangerous trap, and one that's deadly, both when we do it physically, but especially when we do it spiritually. Once in Christ, don't go back to being enslaved of a life of trying to live out of the things in the law. Live in freedom. Live as heirs, as sons adopted by the Creator God. 
as those bought out of slavery to the fear of death, as those given a gift so they can now live as ones who are privileged, not because you've done something, but because you've been given it as a free gift. Let's pray. Father, help us to to stand firm in our freedom, as Paul will later see say, or say and, and explain how to, how to live in freedom, that we would not be addicted to being slaves, that we would not be addicted to our own list or somebody else's list of do's and don'ts, that we would not be addicted to, to following our, our desires and living for them and what they demand, but that we would, in fact, remember every day that, that we We came to freedom by trusting Christ, receiving his free gift of salvation, becoming heirs, joint heirs with Christ of incredible, infinite blessings. And Lord, give us the opportunity to point others who are are in that slavery to freedom in Christ. Uh, You are so good to us. Help us to understand that more and more every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.